This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have um, Brooke Binkowski, the managing, managing editor of Snopes.com. And we are discussing modern journalism or journalism, um, you know, basically in the last 10 years. Um, the reason we wanted to have this discussion is we've been working on this series of information warfare and information operations and sort of the modern age. And we realized that we had a lot of the shows that we had been recording or are recording are very much focused on the military aspect, the intelligence aspect and then sort of you know offensive and defensive sort of viewing that that topic in 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 that sort of manner and we realized we didn't have the perspective of journalists or journalism even though that if you had been sort of paying attention since about 2012 journalism has played an incredible role in shaping you know how we understand information how we don't understand it how we index it, etc. So please welcome um, Brooke. How's it going? Um, it is going well. How are you? Pretty good. Um, I want to maybe start off with a really basic question. And I apologize for the basicness, but I think in the sort of the Trump era, we need to sort of like review civics and civics lessons. Um, and so my question is, you know, when, when you think about yourself as a journalist, you know, what, what do you see as your sort of ideal role in society? And then what do you, you know, how do you compare that to sort of journalism in reality or the work of journalists in sort of now? So there's two reasons I became a journalist. And the, the noble one is the one I'll tell you first. It's, you know, there's this idea that you can, you can bring these issues in society to the forefront and make sure that the world can see what's going on and what's going wrong so we can all address it together so people can understand what is happening around them. And that's all very lofty, and it's true. I mean, I really want people to know what's happening in the world around them because the world around them affects them. And we're so interconnected now that it's important to know what's going on all over the place and important to understand it. Uh, but the other underlying reason for me, at least, is that um, I just like talking to people and, and experiencing new things and seeing things and learning different perspectives and points of view. So it's kind of this, like insanely curious mind um, to the point where it, it's really annoying. I know it's really annoying and I just can't turn it off. Um, and also the, an equally annoying sort of social conscience where I just want to ride in on my white horse, you know, with a lance and like save the world. So it's it's those two things. And I think that if I didn't have those two aspects of my personality, I'd probably be happier doing many other things. But as it is, I think I'm only suitable for journalism. Um, and I think there's a lot of reporters who are like me or a lot of journalists who are like me where we just we, – we don't know what else to do with ourselves. Um, if we weren't journalists, we would probably – God, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know what we would do. Um, and so it's it's kind of, you know, there's this sort of 
personality type where you you want to to tell people things. You want to tell people what's wrong in the world and what has changed and what's the same and what's going on. And you want to write about it. And, and I think that that is a really valuable part of any society. You have to be able to examine and look at your own society in order to be able to make positive changes. Interesting. So then when we look, when we think about journalism from let's say the last 20 years, you know, in, in your view, you know, how has it sort of changed? Like just like as a general overview, because we're going to definitely get into much more specific issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, the most obvious answer to that is um, it's, it's shrinking dramatically. Um, I've been in journalism actually about 20 years. And this is the story I like to tell to illustrate it. When I first started, uh, my very first reporter job was at a small radio station in San Diego called Kogo. And when I first got there, I was a little intern, you know, was 18 years old. And um, I, I remember there were about 25 people who worked at Kogo. And they all said, you know, until the big layoffs last year, there were 50 people here. There were twice as many. It was a really hopping newsroom. And you should have been here last year because everybody got laid off. And I thought, oh, that's so sad. I hope it rebounds. And I went back a couple years ago, and there were three people in the newsroom. And that's a major problem. I don't think a lot of people realize how bad it is. Um, there are, oh, I wish I could remember the numbers off the top of my head. I think it's something like 23,000 working full-time journalists in the United States. And that's half the number of 10 years ago. And I think that that's half the number of 20 years ago, or rather now there's a quarter of the journalists working that were working 20 years ago. It's become outmoded. And that's a major issue. And journalism itself hasn't changed. The need for journalism hasn't changed. The number of journalists have. And the amount of journalists who are working but horribly overpaid and underworked, or rather underpaid and overworked, has changed. I mean, everybody's terrified of losing their job. I've gotten in the habit of when I, when I call my writers, the first thing I say is, you're not in trouble and you're not fired. I just need to talk to you about something. And that's, that's what I have to do because otherwise I know they'll just sit there waiting for me to get to the point. And the point is, in their minds, that they're fired. That's just how it is right now and has been for a long time. It's really unhealthy. Um, so the, the other obvious answer is a lot of stuff has happened online. Social media has changed a lot about journalism. It hasn't changed the basic precepts of it, but it's definitely changed the way journalism is disseminated. Interesting. So I want to maybe sort of examine the role of journalists as gatekeepers, because I think one of the biggest, at least in our, in our research for the show, and then sort of my own personal research on how sort of, you know, our relationship to ideas has changed over time. It seems like that in, in, in this 20 years, the idea of a journalist as somebody, as a specific citizen doing a specific job, you know, as a journalist, you know, their role as a gatekeeper, as the ability to sort of, you know, research a story, report it, and then tell us that story has sort of been altered, you know, because of technology. I mean, do you feel like in your experience that this is true or that, you know, really it's not about just the, the singular changing role of a gatekeeper, but now you have multiple perspectives, you know, either informed through Facebook or Twitter? I think that there are multiple perspectives offered. And I think in the early days of social media, it was a lot easier to find those perspectives. I think that now people tend to, they, I don't think people really want to be in a bubble. I mean, it's unpleasant to disagree with people and be called names, right? But I also think that 
most people really want to have conversations and learn about the people around them. They don't want to sit there and be told that they suck. Um, so I think that the algorithms that have made social media supposedly more pleasant have actually ended up making people sort of un unhappily boxed in. And then unpleasantly surprised when they discovered that they really were put in sort of this, sort of this algorithmic bubble. Um, but I do think that in many ways it has democratized journalism. Um, it's made, it's open, it certainly opened the door for online only journalists, for example. It's made people aware of how the underpinnings of journalism work. And it's made it possible for some people, for some people who are entrepreneurial and who jumped on it uh, early on, it's made it very possible for them to become sort of independent contractors for the, you know, independent journalists and get things up on their own and not have to worry about buying hugely expensive equipment or going through the trouble of trying to get hired at some journalistic outfit to get their, their work out there. And this, this works. Unfortunately, this is a double-edged sword. So for every unicorn riot, which is a great journalistic outfit, um, that's online only and works in a sort of non-hierarchical manner. Um, there are people who are just putting out blatant disinformation and calling themselves journalists. There's also a lot of people who aren't trained. And I, I don't think that journalism is this sort of like lofty um, industry that only the, you know, few and the bright and the whatever can, can attain. But I do think there are basic ethical standards that need to be taught or learned. And, you, you'll make a misstep if you don't because they, again, you have to learn them. Um, there's just these certain things that you do. You know, you you always triple check what somebody's saying. You get three, at the minimum, you get three sources to confirm what one person is saying. You make sure that you, you know, link back to primary sources. You know, things like that that aren't necessarily thought of immediately by people just starting out or trying to make their own way in journalism. And I think that's a problem. I'd like to see more training for the independent journalists who are self-trained, honestly. So I, I want to maybe switch footing a little and maybe, and we can discuss Snopes um, because I mean, maybe it's easier for you to, so explain to us what Snopes is and what that the sort of goal of Snopes.com is. And then we can sort of parse it down and, and get, you know, deeper into the, the, the idea of it. Sure. So Snopes uh, is a fact-checking website. It's been around for 23 years, I think 23 years. Uh, it started when David, David Mickelson and his wife Barbara Mickelson decided to put up a little website, which, you know, this was in the early days of the World Wide Web when people were still talking about graphical user interfaces and, you know, they were talking about URLs instead of URLs, and everything was very, very different. It was the wild and woolly days of the Internet, right? You could find all kinds of crazy stuff on there. I mean, you still can, but, like, now it's just kind of gotten acceptably crazy. Back then, it was just people being really weird for no reason. It was, like, weird Twitter, but everywhere, and, which was it was really fun. Um, but back in those days, um, Barbara and David were both interested in folklore, and why sto certain stories spread and others don't. And they decided to work together and put up this little website as a hobby to get to the, you know, bottom of these persistent 
um, urban legends that were going around, like the guy with a hook instead of a hand, and he's, you know, prowling around lovers' lanes and scraping people's cars. Like, everybody has a story like that. Or somebody's cousin's best friend went to Mexico and passed out and woke up in a tub of ice and, you know, in somebody's bathroom with stitches, and there was a message in the mirror with lipstick, and it said that you're missing a kidney, that kind of thing. So these stories are patently untrue, but they contain warnings or grains of truth in there somewhere. So they decided to try to excavate those. Over time, um, it morphed into what it is now because we, well, they saw the need for for expansion after 9-11 happened. And they, they realized that the Internet wasn't just a great way to spread information. It was also a great way to spread rumors. So they started tracking down just rumors um, as well as the folklore. And so after that, it became more, well, over the last like 16, 17 years, it's become what it is now. So we kind of chased down as, as much misinformation and disinformation and propaganda and fake news and hoaxes that we can with a fairly small staff. And we try to de- debunk them as quickly as we can so that it doesn't spread because it's gone from being kind of a pain to absolutely corrosive. And that's kind of our mission now. And that's what we're, I guess, going to have to keep doing until until disinformation isn't spreading anymore. So th- this might be a little in the weeds, but when we, when we discuss fact-checking and when we discuss a fact, you know, how do we separate out what is a true fact versus misinformation versus disinformation? Like, I know this sounds kind of meta, but like in, in my own work, like, you know, when we deal with like people who write malware or commit crimes, there's definitely an edge of actively going out and deceiving somebody. Whereas I compare that with journalism and a lot of like the stuff that Snopes deals with or some of the silliness on Twitter. It, it A lot of it seems like there's definitely a strand that's intentional. And then there's a strand of like people retweeting or you know, joking and trolling. So when you approach like a story, like how do you separate out when you fact check a story, how do you establish that a fact is true? How do you establish that it's misinformation? How do you establish that it's disinformation? So I have my own sort of what I use internally um, to separate them out. I think really what it boils down to at the end of the day is intent more than anything with misinfo versus disinfo, um, it all falls. So this is how I've started defining it myself. Um, Other people may disagree, which is fine. That's why I keep saying it's my own. But there's this whole thing. There's fake news, right? Um, So that encompasses everything. That's satire, that's hoaxes, trolling, um, and then disinformation, propaganda, misinformation, and so on. Um, So that's fake news, and that's a phrase that I really hope to never hear again, because honestly, I've become so sick of it over the last year. Um, But then misinformation to me is when people are repeating stuff or saying stuff that's not true, but it's not on purpose. They misheard something, or they're just passing something along just in case. You know, that's misinfo. Disinfo is um, truth with some lies mixed into it, and it's done deliberately, um, you know, to usually it's done to weaken people's faith in their government or each other or just create the sense of fear all around them or a sense of instability. 
and to contribute to instability within a country. And pure propaganda, of course, is politically motivated disinformation, which doesn't necessarily have to have any truth in it whatsoever. Uh, So it's kind of the spectrum as I see it. And again, a lot of it boils down just to intent. What I'm most concerned about is outright propaganda and jingoism, but also disinformation. I think disinformation is the most dangerous of all of them because it seems legitimate. It seems, you know, rational and logical at first blush a lot of the time. And then when you start excavating and digging, it's completely insane. Um, So that's kind of, you know, what where I stand on that. And when it comes down to what, how we decide what is true and what's not, so it's kind of the, the whole idea of an absolute truth is difficult because I don't necessarily believe in an absolute truth. I never have. But I do try to sort of pull as much of it out of a story as I possibly can. And what we do is, honestly, this disappoints so many people when I tell them, we just do journalism. We do, we do investigative reporting we do freedom of information act requests we call primary services we send reporters out on the field when we can you know i mean we have reporters in i think all the major cities well no not all of them but we have reporters in new york la san diego chicago uh washington dc um seattle tacoma and um oh gosh i can't remember i think that's it actually um anyway we have reporters all over the place and writers and researchers so I can say, for example, oh, there's this story about a book in this library in D.C. Hey, can one of you go to D.C. and check and see if the book is there? And that's it. Like, that's it's just going and seeing for yourself or going and talking to people for yourself and just digging out the facts where we can find them or as, as much of the facts as we possibly can. And usually it's something like, oh, well, you know, Bob Smith says, Bob Smith said that he's going to buy a house for his next door neighbor. So we call Bob Smith and say, Hey man, you're going to buy a house for your next door neighbor. And Bob Smith says, Oh, absolutely. I was planning on doing that next week. And so then we can say, okay, it's true. You know? And if he says it's not true and issues a denial, then we have to go find out why he's, why it's going around that he said it. Like did his next door neighbor start the story? Did he go back on his promise? I mean, this is obviously an example I just made up, but that's, that's, that's what we do. And it's so unglamorous. <laughs> There's no, like, magic formula. Because, seriously, that's what people want to hear. They want to hear that I have, like, some, you know, access to facts that they don't have. But we don't. We're just we're just doing journalism. Interesting. So where do we factor in conspiracy theories? Because um, Snopes.com, for me, is kind of infamous because um, I think that's where I learned about Pizzagate. Um oh. So that's, I'm sorry for the dubious distinction, but um, but when when you when you deal with a conspiracy theory like Pizzagate, and and it's not just a matter of saying this is absolute, this is not factual, but whereas people will like I I invite the audience to Google Pizzagate because it's just this incredibly crafted like conspiracy that even though it's patently false people still adhere to it. So, I mean, when you deal with a conspiracy theory like that, how do you, is the approach different? You know, is the approach, you know, you know, fact checking it and then sort of constantly just repeating yourself that it's false. You know, how does that work? Well, when it comes to Pizzagate, so we heard about Pizzagate before it sort of swept a bunch of people along. 
we saw it forming. I mean, we all lurk on Reddit and, you know, other corners of the internet where we probably shouldn't. And so we saw it happening. And it was so ridiculous that we didn't think it was going to gain any traction. But, of course, we underestimated how determined people were to find some kind of evidence that children were being trafficked through the basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. at the behest of the Clinton Foundation. So <laughs> so we ended up having to talk about it. Um, what we did was debunk it, and we just tried to share it as widely as possible. But the thing is, with conspiracy theorists, you can't out-yell them. They are absolutely convinced that they are the smart ones and that they are right beyond any shadow of a doubt. Like, that's really, to me, the what a conspiracy theorist, like, the, what that's what the basis of all their conspiracy theories are. They're convinced that they're smarter than any anybody else that they know, and they see patterns that nobody else can see. This is where training comes in, though, because they don't understand that what they're doing is cherry-picking. They, they're starting, they're doing the opposite, exact opposite of journalism. They are starting with a foregone conclusion in their heads. In this case, it was Hillary Clinton is an evil person. And that's really what this one boiled down to. And they cherry-picked everything they could find from that WikiLeaks dump to support that. So they decided, you know, from this, this dump of, of Clinton campaign emails um, and DNC emails that pizza was actually a code word for little kids. And because the Clinton Foundation had been involved in Haiti, they decided it was a little Haitian kid. So when people were like, oh, my God, I'm so hungry. I could murder a pizza. They're like, oh, they're killing babies. They're killing babies. Like, that's really what that whole thing rested on, was this idea that all these emails were riddled with code words, as if private emails would need code words. But, hey, you know, whatever. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just deal with them. Um, so, I mean, you can't really do much with them. What you can do, though, is get out ahead of these rumors and stop the, them from sounding like, like actually, you know, almost logical and that way, if people are kind of on the fence and you have somebody who's absolutely assured that they're right, they're like, oh, it all makes sense. You know, I have it on good authority that these pizzas are actually children. And they're, they're kind of like, well, I had no, I'm agnostic about this. I have no opinion. At least they can say, well, you know, I read this article saying that it was a total misreading. It's sort of an inoculation. You can't really do much once it's out there, but you can get out in front of it. And that's what journalism should do. That's what journalism is meant to do, actually. And, uh, you know, when you don't have journalism and you have journalists, you get what we have right now. So, I mean, the story of Pizzagate sort of fascinates me because, um, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, because it also introduces us to a, a sort of a couple issues. One is um, it, it introduced me, at least, to somebody called um, Mike Cervanovich. I, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Cervanovich? Cervanovich? Um, and then also, like, on Twitter. Uh, well, so, I mean, like, so it, it seems like a lot of Pizzagate was pushed through Twitter, was pushed through Facebook, and then sort of established persistence through Google. So when I, when I Google search Pizzagate, it's, you have the Snopes.com link, and then you have everything else. And everything else isn't, it's not truthful. It's not, it doesn't, you know, debunk Pizzagate, rather. It sort of repeats the conspiracy. So I'm, I'm sort of curious, when we think about Pizzagate and sort of the persistence of this conspiracy theory, you know, is it the power of the lie or the power of the conspiracy? Or is it the sort of ecosystem of 
a few people pushing it coupled with Twitter, Facebook, Google, you know, how do we, how do we think about the sort of surrounding ecosystem? It was definitely the latter. I mean, it's, it's a few people are really pushing this and hitting this hard. And it's also wrapped up in um, Seth Rich, may he rest in peace, and how he was murdered um, during some, an early morning attempted robbery is what he's saying. But of course, it's all being tied back to Pizzagate and the leaked emails and, you know, I don't know, the Clinton Foundation and all of this stuff. It, 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 I think it's a few very loud people. And then there are many others who aren't quite so loud, but they're, they're young or they don't really know. They're kind of sheltered. They don't really know what's going on. And so they really do think that they're saving the world from this kind of, you know, they're the little guy saving the world from, from this, this forest for evil, which is Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's, I, that's, that's all I can imagine. I mean, I know conspiracy theorists aren't that large of a group. I know for a fact that most people are rational enough that they'll look at stories and they'll go, okay, well, this fits too neatly together. Obviously, there's something missing. I mean, life is messy. That's, that's the problem. You know, when I, and, and actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to sort of take a side trip for a second and, and ramble, sorry. But I really think that a lot of conspiracy theorists are afraid because life is very messy. Life is unpredictable. It doesn't get wrapped up in a neat little bow and you don't get like a nice little narrative story arc. That's why stories are satisfying to read because it is wrapped up in a little bow. And I think that conspiracy theorists are telling themselves stories and each other's stories because they're afraid because anything could happen. Literally, you could get struck by lightning or a car could, you know, drive through your front yard and into your into your living room and, and kill you while, while you're watching TV. I mean, life is unpredictable. And so it's a way to tame the sort of unpredictability of life instead of accepting it. I think most people accept that life is unpredictable and anything can happen at any point. And uh, the very few loud and often sheltered and inexperienced people who are conspiracy theorists don't feel that way or don't want to feel that way. So we can't really do much with people like that. I mean, that's, that's like an airtight ecosystem, as you put it. But again, we can we can at least get out in front of it. Um, but I really do think that most of the country is pretty rational. I have to keep telling myself that, honestly. But, you know, also, I mean, our traffic on the site is really good. So there have to be people who are looking for facts a lot of the time. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't exist. <laughs> right. So I... I would uh, sort of maybe ask, what happens when you, I'll just be blunt, what happens when you're leaked something? So I think um, in the last sort of few years, we've had sort of the evolution of Wikilinks and sort of what they leak or what they publish, I should, I should say, isn't false. So it's, it's, you know, primary documents, it's true, but, you know, with the sort of you know, the issue is more, you know, there's no context or there's indexing problems. So what happens when you're, you're essentially handed something that's true, but there's no context, there's no surrounding idea and people are sort of left to make up their own mind about it, especially something like sort of like Wikilinks where you have raw primary documents of, you know, vault seven or, um, the Manning documents, you know, as a journalist, how do you deal with that? Well, 
you know, that's exactly where journalism training comes in. You need to have some kind of experience and training and mentorship so you can understand how to put things into context. And I don't mean deciding what to leave out. I don't mean censoring. I mean knowing that there's more to the story and knowing where to look for more to that story. When you have raw context, free information, that definitely is, that's not, first of all, that's not journalism. But second of all, that lends itself to conspiracy theories because that's giving you a whole bunch of raw material from which you can pluck whatever plausible sounding conspiracy theory you like. It's, it's just as bad, uh, information without context is just as bad as stories without information as far as I'm concerned. So I think that, you know, it was WikiLeaks and sites like WikiLeaks, when they're dumping out this raw information, aren't really doing as much of a public service as they tell themselves they are because they're, again, like you said, it's not indexed. It's not organized. It's just a bunch of raw information. That's like just saying a bunch of random words all together and expecting people to be, be able to carry on a conversation with you. It just doesn't work. And they have performed valuable services in the past, um, but, you know, in in light of kind of what they're – what they're doing now, it seems to me that they have an ideological viewpoint that has become more and more clear. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it does seem they have a specific agenda. And now that's making me question, you know, some of the stuff that they put out 10 years ago, for example. You know, why should I trust what they put out 10 years ago if they're going to be dumping information and, and sort of promulgating conspiracy theories in the process now? Um, so that's kind of an issue that I, I have with what they're putting out now. And they, they kind of came after us a little bit. Um, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't say that we were like monsters or anything like that. They just kind of like jabbed at us a couple of times <laughs> on social media. Um, and so I'm like, you know, what are you guys doing? I, 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 I'm not the enemy here, but I am kind of wondering where you're coming from at this point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I mean, it seems like I think the critique of WikiLeaks, there's that there's that critique, and there's also the critique of journalists, where you know you have CNN, you have BuzzFeed, the New York Times, whatever sort of organizations that have to make money, and then they sort of you know picked and choose the the sort of most not salacious, but the things that are sort of going to bring in the clicks going to bring in the ratings and sort of, you know, and the context that's established around those documents seems to be the most exaggerated and crazy context possible. So, there's, I mean, there's it, absolutely plenty to critique and criticize about modern journalism. I think actually uh, the day journalism is beyond reproach or beyond any kind of critique is the day journalism is dead. You need to be able to have a conversation with it. And I think that that's going to be the new model that we see with journalism in the future going forward. Um, I think it's going to be treated as much more of a conversation, and I think it should be, because it really is. For too long, journalists have spent this time thing, you know, saying things like to themselves and each other, like, well, time for me to go inform the masses. You know, it's like there's us, the journalists, and then there's the, the people, and that's not a good way to think. That I mean, that automatically, you know, privileges you over everybody else, and I think that that model is well on its way to becoming obsolete, and I think it's not soon enough. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that every organization, so you have to, every single fact, every single story, even the most trite little story, 
has so much background to it that you could talk forever. So you have to know what to cut out. And what you cut out depends on your own implicit bias. And most of the time, it means that you're cutting out things that are not necessarily germane to what people want to read or hear. However, um, not always, especially when you have stories that are highly politicized, for example, or very complex. And that's why I think it's important to always go with vetted and trusted news organizations, but also look for news organizations that are uh, at least acknowledge their bias. I don't like organizations that revel in their bias because that's when you end up with highly politicized news. But at least, you know, you can look at what they're all about by their slogans or by what their the journalists are saying um, and doing and what kind of stories they're covering. Because you cannot avoid a bias. You can't avoid a slant. It's just kind of human nature and it's also the nature of the beast. So um, there's valid reasons to critique journalists for what they leave out of the stories. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, you should. But also it, there's valid reasons to respect organizations that at the very least acknowledge that they do have a bias. So here's, I mean, like for me, like, it seems like it's a very much an issue of trust. So when you, as a millennial, when I think about journalism, you know, I'm a big fan of New York, New York times, Washington post financial times, but I also think about sort of, sort of the run up to the Iraq war. I think about, um, the financial crisis. And then I think about sort of the, you know, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein story where, you know, you realize like the New York times might've been sort of acting as a gatekeeper and preventing, you know, the full breadth of that story coming to, to bear. And I mean, I, how do I, as a non-journalist trust, you know, journal journalism, like papers that where you have like, you know, you know, sort of not censorship, but not sort of emphasizing certain stories or sort of being reliant more on a narrative than factual truth? Well, that's a good question. And that's one that I think might be beyond my own scope. Um, what I usually advise people is to read, and this isn't always, I mean, it's easy for me to say this because this is my job, right? But I always say read as much as you can. Watch and consume as much news. If you're really interested in what's going on in the world, find what you can, as much as you can about a specific topic and, and read all these perspectives. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. There are academics who spend their whole lives doing this and they feel they've only scratched the surface of any particular topic. But at the very least, if you're reading something about the United States, try to read some international perspectives as well. You know, I talked about bias a second ago. Um, BBC has, um, excellent stories, um, and it almost only covers, almost only exclusively covers former colonies and countries in which the United Kingdom, um, or the British Empire once had a stake in. So you'll see a lot of coverage, for example, of Nigeria or Singapore or the United States. Um, but if you see that and acknowledge it for what it is, um, you will see that it's got this perspective and it's got this bias, and then you can keep that in your mind while you read other perspectives. So I, 
I always think that it's good to to find three or four sources, um, journalistic sources, and read their perspectives on the same story, and then decide for yourself who you can trust. Unfortunately, I have no better answer than that, and I'm really sorry. It's it's a very sticky and delicate question to ask, you know, because I think that even the most vetted and thorough and solid news organization makes mistakes, and those mistakes are used often to discredit them. But it's sometimes it's unavoidable. It's human nature. People screw up. People jump the gun, and that's just kind of how it how it goes. I'm, I'm not saying that you should, you know, if they keep lying or keep screwing up, that you should continue to trust them. But I, I think that it's important to keep in mind that most journalists are doing things in good faith and they're trying their best. So then I, I'm sort of curious, and when we acknowledge perspective, sort of how far do we go? Like in the sense of, so post-Trump, like I, I find this very interesting because Fox News and MSNBC always, you know, they have a sort of bias, you know, liberal or conservative. But now, post-election, it, it really seems like that they've really gone off into not extremes, but sort of, I guess, I guess Fox News is, has gone off into an extreme, whereas MSNBC seems to, I, I, I don't even know how to describe them, but, um, you know, how, you know, how far should we go into acknowledging a perspective? I mean, do we, is it a matter of, of saying there's a conservative media and there's a liberal media or how do we incorporate something like Fox news or Breitbart or Infowars into our thinking about acknowledging somebody else's perspective or a different political, you know, perspective on things. Let's not go crazy and call Infowars journalism (laughs) um i'm gonna pick on those guys because first of all they promulgate more conspiracy theories than just about anybody and second they steal stories and then print them on their site so they can you know whatever they're doing is not journalism they're they're fomenting you know hate and they're talking about lizard people and you know stealing stories i just I, I don't really have any professional regard for them whatsoever, honestly. So there's that. But, you know, that's just my perspective. What do I know? Um, but I do think that the, the situation is, is nuanced. It's not just conservative media, liberal media, even though the, the powers that be might have you believe that. Um, I think that there's, well, so Fox News, I don't know what they're doing now. I had respect for them for a very long time as a conservative outfit that had a lot of really good journalists on staff. Fox News Latino in particular, I thought was excellent. Um, They still have a lot of really good journalists on staff, but it seems like Fox and Friends, for example, is just gone full on conspiracy theorist. And um, I've seen some very odd stories on their website in the last month or two. I I don't really know what to make of where they're going. Um, They seem to be more inflammatory than usual. Um, but, like, they're doing things like, you know, questioning whether the moon landing really happened. I saw that rather odd story a couple weeks ago and just just odd stuff. So I, I don't know what's going on. Um, but I thought that they were a, a worthy, you know, conservative-flavored news organization for a long time. And, again, they still have some excellent journalists. Um, MSNBC, I don't I, – I pay attention to their online stuff, NBC – but I don't watch them, so I don't really know what direction they're going in. 
Um, sorry. I, I say read and watch a lot, but my TV watching time has kind of gone by the wayside in the last year or so. I only just started picking up new books to read since since January. So I, I'm I'm kind of I, I don't really know what to make of what they're doing either, but only because I haven't really watched them. Um, however, I don't think that, like I said, I don't think it's just liberal versus conservative. I think it's, you know, there's liberal and there's conservative and then there's, you know, shades of gray from everything from just straight up conspiracy theories to the driest debunkings of those conspiracy theories that you can find and everything in between. Um, I think they all have a place, except for maybe the ones that just poop out, you know, conspiracy theories day in and day out. And I've already talked trash about them, so you know where I stand. Um, but I, I think that they, they all do have a place. I think what we're seeing, though, is a kind of repeat of what we saw during the Bush administration, during the Iraq War, where language and the sort of national discourse moved really sharply, hawkish and to the right. And so anybody who was left behind still kind of trying to keep up was, you know, labeled liberal or left wing or, you know, whatever epithet they lobbed at people back then. I can't remember. I blocked it all out. But it's still it just because the, the, the country's more polarized, which it most definitely is, doesn't mean um, journalism has necessarily become more polarized. I don't know. I mean, I can't really tell you. It's really hard to sort of disconnect myself from the national mood, to be honest. It's harder and harder with every news story that I read. Um, but it does seem to me that it's not journalism so much as the just the country is really sharply divided right now. But, it, I mean, to that point, um, sharply divided, it, it really seems like, you know, you can pick and choose your own sort of perspective so like for instance on twitter you can build a people you follow as reflecting your own ideology and then your web browsing habits are reflecting your own ideology so liberal msnbc whatever and then when you get onto facebook it sort of reinforces that so i mean i mean at the top of the show you made reference to an algorithmic bubble but it almost seems like like I guess the best example I can use is that for me, when I built my follow my the people I follow on Twitter, I had to go out of my way to follow people of differing perspective. You know, I had to spend the energy, and I'm I'm a highly energy like I'm you know that's what I wanted to do, but I can't imagine that somebody who sort of just follows Twitter for news would go out of their bubble, go out of their way to go out of their bubble, and it really seems like from Twitter to media, to Facebook, it all seems to sort of reinforce itself. I mean, how do you, how do you break out a bubble? How do you, I mean, is it a matter of like teaching people critical thought or I mean, how does that work? I think people, I have a lot of faith in people. I think people really are better than that. I think they already know for the most part how to think critically. I think this also is part of like what I have to tell myself so I can sleep at night. Otherwise, I'm just going, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by lunatics. Oh, no. But I, I really do think that, the, that people, by and large, are open-minded and they are um, tolerant and they do think critically. At least I hope so. Um, I think 
you know, you're asking me some really interesting questions that require a good deal of thought. So forgive me if I'm not articulating this as well as I could. But um, I, that, that's a good point where you choose who you follow, you choose what news organizations you follow, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think that every news organization, or rather, every news organization, every national news organization, I'll put it that way, um, has a vested interest in having at least you know, overlap in the stories being covered by other news organizations because there's sort of this sense of um, kind of friendly and sometimes not so friendly rivalry where, you know, it's like, oh, well, these three news organizations are reporting this, so we better get a story about it up because we don't want to be completely scooped, right? There's that whole thing. So you're still going to be getting these big stories, um, but what I would like to see in order to break people out of this informational bubble that is so decried that I, I still don't think I'm not completely convinced it exists um, as much. I mean, I know it exists, but I'm not convinced it exists to the point that everybody's, you know, worried about. Um, I think that the best way to break through that, however, is to have it all boils down to more reporters, more news, you know, more journalism, because, Otherwise, you're getting the same three or four stories over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and you're hearing about the same three stories over and over and over and over again from your friends. And and all these other stories around you are going by the wayside. So I think that that would, might be a really good way to, to kind of get people out of that bubble. I mean, but of course I'm going to say that. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm going to say journalism is the, the solution to everything. So please consider my perspective uh, as having its own bias <laughs> and I'm aware of it, but I really do think that journalism would go a long way toward it. I truly believe in the power of telling stories about the world around us for building bridges and making people aware of what's going on and building tolerance. So I'd like to see more journalism. I think that that would really help. I want to maybe build off that and circle back to your initial story about how when you were in the newsroom in the beginning you know, there, there was like 20 people. And then when you visited, you know, last year or last month or whatever, there was only three people. So I'm sort of curious when we when we discuss journalism and its profitability. And it seems like what really makes a lot of money or not even a lot of money, but what makes money is is sort of clickbait or superficial stories or stories that play to our worst nature and our worst assumptions so, I mean, when we discuss real journalism and sort of the pursuit of, of facts and truth, I mean, how, how does that compare to its profitability? And, you know, like, I, I want to tell a personal story. Um, so when Project Veritas, they're, so they tried to, you know, fool the, the Washington Post. Um, on Twitter, people were discussing how Project Veritas is funded. And then one of the most disturbing facts that I had read was, James O'Keefe, the head of Project Veritas, gets paid $300,000 a year, something in that range. And uh, that made me do a spit take when I read that. So I spit water all over my monitor at work. But I, I'm, I'm just like, like, where do we put in profitability and, like, you know, journalism as a business in this? Well, first of all, James O'Keefe isn't doing journalism. He's doing propaganda. He always has. He dishonestly edits videos. He sets up these uh, ridiculous scenarios that 
only people who have to deal with him would fall for. I mean, the, you know, the Planned Parenthood one, for example, the woman that they supposedly tricked wasn't fooled at all. She was going along with it to try to protect the woman, and she called the police as soon as they left the office, but he dishonestly edited it to make it look like she was complicit in, you know, whatever filthy thing that he was trying to get her to be complicit in. And so I I have to say that journalism isn't lucrative, but propaganda certainly is, so I'm sure he's making quite a lot of money. Um, So now that I've gotten that off my chest, there's another thing that I want to get off my chest. Journalism is not supposed to be inherently lucrative. And it became, it was an accident that it became that way. I think this, these attempts to monetize journalism are relatively new Um, for a long time during its golden age, like in the sixties and seventies, it was seen as a public service that was occasionally lucrative accidentally. But what it was actually doing um, was building trust and building, you know, credibility and building a sense of being part of this community while Americans watched it on television, for example, you know, so they'd watch whatever they were watching during the day. But at night, there was always like the news, the the serious side of it all. And it was never supposed to bring in a lot of money. Journalism is often a money loser because it's expensive and it's time consuming and it is incredibly unsexy. It's fun um, when you're doing it. But the end product is often like castor oil. You know, sometimes you just, it it just, you can't sweeten it and make it go down more easily, but it's important anyway. Um, And that's something that I think people have not really come to terms with yet because, again, for a long time it was incredibly lucrative when they figured out a way to run advertisements and instead of just sponsorships and when the internet came around and people discovered that you could get advertising money with clicks and people were clicking on you know the i don't know pictures of what was going on in whatever country um they they discovered that you could make money but Thinking of journalism as inherently profitable was a mistake from the get-go, in my opinion, because it is so expensive to do investigative stuff, and it is so absolutely necessary. I think people have to rearrange their thinking about what journalism is and its end goal and why it exists in order for journalism to get better. So I think when we, you know, I think we've reached the end of the interview, and usually our last question or our last sort of comment is, you know, for our guests to leave us with something to think about, something to sort of chew on, you know, and, you know, a, a, a takeaway, if you will. Hmm. Okay, let me try to think. Oh, I know. This is what I tell every single person who asks me, um, you know, how I tell if, I, if I'm reading fake news or not. So this is my thing that I always tell everybody, the rule of thumb. Now, when I say rule of thumb, I mean that it's not 100% accurate all the time. This is what Snopes has done to me, by the way. Working here has, has made me just second-guess everything I say. I've never been less of an absolutist. <laughs> so I'm like, well, most of the time this is true, but, you know, there's always a chance that it's not. So in this case, the rule of thumb is if, if you read something or watch something or hear something and you have a strong emotion to it, like a strong response, like you're instantly terrified – or you're instantly really pissed off, or you're instantly like looking at somebody who doesn't look like you and thinking they're the enemy, especially that last one, um, check your sources. That's it. Check your sources because you're being manipulated or being played. You could be just getting manipulated by current events, although that is usually unlikely. Um, I, 
I do have emotional responses to stories personally, like, you know, the wildfires in Ventura County are evoking a lot of fear and anxiety in me because I live in Southern California and it's fire season and I've been through enough huge fires to know how scary they can be. So I know that's not manipulation. However, if you see a story where it's like, you know, once again, Pizzagate, Hillary Clinton, that's playing on people's emotions. It's it's precious little babies being smuggled for horrible things and you know, then getting killed and being treated like they're disposable, that would make even the hardest part melt, right? All those cute little babies being tortured in the basement of a pizza place. Your emotions are being played. You notice that now, um, all of a sudden, the national discourse is centered around pedophilia, and it's real-life pedophilia, and all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, what do you expect? So, you can see the difference between manipulation and what's happening in the, in the, in real life. Uh, emotions get played or not, depending on what the political situation is, it seems like. Um, but back to my original point, which was, if you feel a strong emotional response, just check your sources. It is exceedingly likely that you're being manipulated and just watch out for that. And don't, let your world be run by fear. The world can be a scary place. It can be an unpredictable one. But once fear gets a hold of you and you start to try to make some sense of the world around you from a place of fear, you're much more vulnerable to manipulation. Okay. <laughs> On that note, um, <laughs> I'm thank really you. For parties too, by the way. I get a couple beers in me and this is all I talk about. <laughs> Okay. Uh, on that note, well, uh, um, thank you for, so much for for being a guest on the the program. Thank you. I uh, I hope I sounded okay and I didn't ramble too much. Uh, no, you didn't. Um, I'm gonna, 